Welcome to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. Each week, we hear real-time stories from athletes and CEOs on how to maximize performance through an endurance mindset. Let's get started. Welcome to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. Today's guest is on a mission to bring excellence to the profession of sales. He's a certified leverage sales coach at Leverage Sales Coaching, the founder of Immerse Sales, a sales development consultancy that specializes in B2B sales. Mornay Smith, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate the invitation and to be on the show. It's great having you. So let's dive right in. Um, sure. Mornay, tell me how your endurance mindset has impacted your life unexpectedly. You know, off the top of my head, I would say that as a kid, um, things came fairly easily to me, right? I was a kind of a perpetual overachiever without trying. I was good academically. I was good at sport, good culturally. Um, and then I guess at some point, you just assume that that's going to be the pattern of your life. Uh, and then it's not because as you get older, you know, you find that there's a lot of other people that also uh, are, you know, a little bit better at certain things. Um, and I had to learn pretty early on how to be gritty. So I guess uh, uh, an, an example would be uh, when I when I started my first business, um, I was you know reasonably good at selling, and I thought, well, being a good sales guy, how hard can it be? Um, I can take care of the revenue, and then I can just get other people to do the other bits. But it turned out that you know being self-employed and being an entrepreneur are two very different things. And unexpectedly, I found myself, I found the journey a lot harder than I thought it would be. And I remember maybe a couple of years in. Um, a mentor of mine saying, you know, the growth of your business is really a mother of your own growth and development. And that was a game changer for me. It was a game changer for me to, to look at it in those terms and say, that's interesting. So if my business is not growing, or if I have particular issues, it's really a mirror image of my own growth. And, and that, I guess, set me on a track, which has now been a lifelong journey of just personal development and um, trying to better myself and improve myself so that I can mirror that in, in everything that I do. Um, I guess an unexpected way that um, endurance mindset has also impacted my life is uh, is my is my my lovely wife, my happy marriage. You know, she uh, I met Eleonora kind of six years ago, and um, I don't think she was that interested when we met, but I was pretty persistent um, and kind of wooed her for a long time, um, and eventually, thankfully. She, uh, she succumbed to my limited charms and we're now very happily married. So it seems to work both in business and personal life. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, clearly, you're a sales guy. If you, if you have the perseverance and persistence so, to, uh, to convince her. Uh, Monet, you mentioned a word earlier, gritty. Can you mm. describe what you meant by that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, for me, when I talk to salespeople or work with companies that are building sales teams, um, they often ask me, if I had to pick one thing, you know, what is the one characteristic value competency that I want to see in salespeople? Because there's, you know, there's so many things that you could look at, you know, skills and mindset and all this kind of stuff. And I normally go with grit. And for me, grit means never give up. Now, that doesn't mean be dogmatic and bang your head against a brick wall. It means, and I, I talk to salespeople about this a lot when I talk to them about how they qualify their pipeline or, you know, how they manage the opportunities that they have. I think, what is it, Einstein who said, you know, the, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, getting the same result. 
Um, I'm not an advocate for you know banging your head against the brick wall indefinitely. But what I do think is that we have a responsibility as human beings in any endeavor that we undertake, whether it's personal or professional, to really be resourceful. And that resourcefulness has got very little to do with the amount of resources we have. I don't, talk, I don't mean money. I don't mean connections. I think resourcefulness is a state of mind. Resourcefulness is something that comes from a, a mindset of abundance. And when you're resourceful, then, and, and you have some persistence and some perseverance, then there's very few things that you can't overcome. You know, the, the simple analogy that I use is, uh, I forget the exact number. It's a crazy number, but there's, there's something like tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of golfers that are scratch golfers or better, right? And then even there's tens of thousands of golfers that are PGA professionals, so club pros and things like that. But there's only 125 or 175 players on tour. And the difference is often not skill. The difference is often mindset. And the difference is grit. And that grit is, if you're going to be a great golfer, if you're going to play on tour, then you've got to also be able to score from the rough. If, you're, if you can only make a score if you're on the fairway, well, you're probably not going to be a Hall of Famer. You're probably not going to win any majors. You've got to be able to score from the rough. So for me, um, it's not that I expect bad things to happen. It's just that my, 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 my mindset is when it occurs, and actually my wife reminded me of this the other day, when it occurs, the mindset is, what is a fun way that I can find to solve this problem? Mm. And that's what greediness is to me. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I love the analogy to golf because um, it's so true. I mean, even just the slightest difference between the PGA Tour players and your top club pro is amazing, right? And it's, yeah. it's a lot of it's between the ears and the creativity and the, to your point, the, the abundance mindset of saying, yeah, this is my opportunity to hit it around the tree and onto the green. Um, Monet, you also talked about uh, your personal development journey. Can you walk mm -hmm. us through that and, and when that discovery happened in your life? Yeah, actually, I remember it quite vividly. I was probably about 14 years old or so, um, you know, getting into high school. And I, I guess I wasn't an untypical teenager. I was moody and, you know, took life very, very seriously um, and, and quite unhappy. I was, I was kind of a strange kid in as much as I would excel at things, but it was difficult for me to make friends. So my friends were typically from... Um, you know, private sporting clubs that I belong to or things like that. So in school itself, I find it quite a hard time. And because I was, you know, sad and kind of, I don't know, you know, teenage depressed, if you will. Um, you know, my father, who was an educator, kind of put his arm around me and said, okay, we're going to do something about this. And I don't know where he found it, but he brought home a, a VHS tape for those people that still remember those. <laughs> and the VHS tape was of a talk delivered by uh, Leonardo Valenci Buscaglia. And the talk was called Only You Can Make a Difference. And it was a talk that he did for the Ford Motor Company, I'm going to say back in the 70s or maybe early 80s. So it was, it was already quite an old talk. And I must have watched that tape on repeat, you know, until it started stretching out the band on the inside. Because one of the things that he said that I'll never, ever forget is, Nobody can put you on a downer unless you choose to go there. And that was the first time in my life that anybody had 
suggested to me that other people don't have control over how you feel. I mean, of course, there's circumstances and there is environment. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that, you know, if you were born into an incredibly difficult and impoverished environment, that that's not going to have some kind of an impact on your psyche and your development. I don't want to trivialize it. But what I mean is, I hear so many people say, you make me feel, you this, you that. And, and actually, the real truth is nobody can put you on a downer unless you choose to go there. So that really sparked my journey in, in kind of wanting to learn more about psychology and human behavior and NLP and thought patterns. So I guess like many people, I got into, you know, into Tony Robbins in my late teens and early 20s, uh, read his books, got his audio tapes. I had a, a life coach. Um, and then just started kind of consuming stuff as much as I could. You know, I would read philosophy and I would uh, buy cassette tapes. And then a little bit later in life, when I was working and making a bit of money, I started, you know, paying to get on flights and fly to places and sit in the audience of some of these, you know, kind of really inspirational people so that I could be in proximity. But more than anything, in addition to wanting to be close to these, you know, call them gurus, if you will, I also wanted to be part of a community. When I got on the plane the first time and I flew, I think the first one I did was actually it was in London. I did um, a program that Tony did called Unleash the Power Within UBW for a kind of a long weekend. And it was 6,000 of us, I think, in this big conference center. And that was the first time that I realized the power of community. You know, it's one thing to have a superior mindset. It's one thing to be gritty. It's one thing to be interested in personal development. but it can also be a lonely journey. And the power of community when you have like-minded people around you just changed the game for me. And I, I made friends on that weekend that I still value as my closest friends to this day. And since then, I've, I've been habitual about attending events like that at least like once every 18 months to two years or so, you know, COVID restrictions notwithstanding. When you started that response to the question, it reminded me of a, a keynote presentation I went to years ago by this gentleman, Don Dapani. And he had the audience close their eyes and you imagined, you know, being at the beach with your family, some sort of celebration or a wedding or something that you were really, really had a ton of joy. And then he kept your eyes closed. He goes, now I want you to think about a funeral or think about somebody you lost or think about mm. whatever. And then when we came with our eyes open, he said, you know, I didn't change. Nothing's changed in the last 10 seconds, but your emotion went from being warm mm. and happy to sad. And to your point, right, we choose that. Um, I'm, could you go into another example of where in your life you've applied that? Like you come into a situation that you thought, oh, this is X, and then you took a moment to think about it or do some sort of ritual or habit and brought yourself around to the other end? Yeah, I mean, so many examples now from professional and personal life. I mean, when you were telling that story about the, you know, the visualization and the emotion, I actually immediately thought of a, a story that I heard. I'm, I'm probably going to butcher it, but I'll, I'll try and do it justice. And that was, they did an experiment where um, they would hire actors to go into a park. Um, and two of the actors would have um, a warm drink and two of the actors would have a cold drink, like an ice drink. And they would go up to people and, and they would say, hey, do you mind just holding this drink for a second um, while I tie my shoe or whatever? And then they'll start telling this person a story, kind of a personal story. It's like, I want to tell you a story. And then um, 
I want to, you know, tell me what the takeaways were from the story. So they would give them the cup and do the thing. And then they'd start telling the story. And then as they tell the story, they would say, okay, can you tell me what is your impression of like the protagonist in the story? And then the second set of actors would come out and do the same thing with different people. And they would have them hold a cold drink and then tell them the exact same story. And when they com compared the results, what we found was that 80% of the time, the person holding the warm drink felt that the main character was warm and giving and generous. And the people holding the cold drink, the person, the main protagonist, exact same story, was kind of disconnected and cold and callous. And hearing stories like that in my kind of journey of personal development really made me think about, you know, how that applies to day-to-day -day life, how that applies to business. Um, and something that I recently got back to, I, um, I bought myself, you know, my little, my little journal again, um, cause I'd fallen out of the habit. But what I find amazing about journaling now is that I get to set the intention for the day when I start. And it's amazing to me that when I go through my journal, if I skip a day and I then think back about how I was that day, how I reacted, the words, the words that I used, my emotions, the decisions that I made, they're different or more reactive than the days when I took 10, 15 minutes to sit down in the morning and say, you know, this thing asked me a few questions, you know, what are your intentions for the day? What are you grateful for? Um, and then what is going to be your happy hour today? What is the one thing you're going to do for yourself that's going to make you happy? On the days when I've journaled and I've set those intentions, there is, a, there is kind of like a pragmatism and a, a positivity to the day. And I find that my interactions with my, my staff, with my wife, with my friends, the tone is different, almost irrespective of what happens in the day. I mean, you know, stuff happens, right? But if you set the intention, if you set the foundation, it's almost like you're just starting on a different plane as opposed to, oh, I didn't do it this morning because I had an early call and I get up late and, and now everything is just a reaction. The life is coming at me and I'm just trying to dodge arrows and kind of do my best and, you know, hope that I'm a nice person on the other end. So there's so many examples professionally and personally I can think of where, you know, changing my mindset has just almost in a, in a way changed the physical reality of what I'm experiencing. What came to mind when you're talking through that um, around happy hour, I suspect that also gives you something to look forward to, right? So if you've got something in the day that you're really looking forward to, and that's your happy hour and something in the morning kind of ticks you off or puts you off kilter, you're like, you know what? I'm still looking forward to what's going to happen at three o'clock this afternoon. Um, and in my, my weekly planning, I try to do something for myself at least once a week that I'll look forward to if it's you know, going for a hike or reading a different book or playing golf or, and I find that that also applies that, you know what, if I have a tough Monday, at least on Thursday, I know that I'm going to be swimming in the pool with my kids. Mm. So I'm cu curious, Mornay, what triggered you back into journaling? Do you know, it was, it was classically one of those things where the intention was there, but the action wasn't. Mm. And uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pretty active guy. You know, I, I run a business across, a, you know, that operates across a few different countries. And I recently moved from Europe to the U S and, um, recently married. And, you know, there's a lot been going on in my life recently. So life has been exciting. Let's put it that way for the last, you know, year or so. It's been very exciting. Um, but what I had noticed was that I'd gotten myself into patterns where 
I was in reaction mode. Now, from the outside, people might look at my life and say, oh my goodness, he lives in Miami, he looks over the water, he runs the successful business, you know, beautiful wife, happy this, da, 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 da. But I knew that even though the duck was nice and even on the water, the feet were going, you know, at 100 mile an hour. I knew that I woke up most mornings exhausted. I knew that I was, you know, not being consistent with my training. I, I knew that I was getting through my days through sheer force of will. And because I've had some, you know, some struggles and some things in my life happen to me and I've pushed through, I know that I'm capable of. But um, Eleonora reminded me recently and she said, I just want to ask you a question. Do you think that it always needs to be this hard? And at first I was like a little bit offended. I was like, what do you mean? You know? But then I thought about it and I was like, you know what, actually, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's not always supposed to be this hard. Maybe there's a way for me to be more intentional about what I do. And then, you know, because the, I'm not, not going to mention any names because the people that make these funny devices, I'm sure listen to not only our words, but also our thoughts somehow. Of course, I get an ad on social media for this particular journal, which is a very famous journal that people use, especially aimed at men. And I, I see this thing come up on my feed right in that time when I'm thinking, you know what, I really should get back to my journaling. And then I thought, maybe it's big tech. Maybe it's just the universe saying, hey, I'm tapping you on the shoulder and letting you know that it's time. And if you ignore me, that's okay. But in my experience, whenever I've ignored you know, messages from the universe, the divine God, whatever you want to call it, mm. I find that the taps increase with frequency and veracity until eventually you get one of these like big clips around the ear, right? And I just thought, let's not wait for that. I'm going to take this as a sign. I'm going to buy this thing and I'll try it for a couple of days and let's see. So I bought it. And after day one, I was like, there was something familiar about it. I used to do it a lot when I was younger and it was almost like falling into like a familiar pattern. And I just, I could feel my, my nervous system almost like just power down a little bit. And me getting out of that like fight or flight response. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's only been a few weeks, but I think it would be difficult to get me off it now. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and I find it through my life and I've done journaling, morning, miracle, you name it it ebbs and flows depending on what my body or what my mind needs at that moment. And I don't know what it needs. I don't know if I need to start journaling tomorrow. I don't know if I need to do a 10 mile run every morning, but at yeah. some point in time, if you keep an open mind to it, it presents itself and then you take it. Um, you know, I love what your wife said about, does it always have to be this hard? And I think one of the things that probably shifted with you is back to mindset, right? If you don't think of it, Oh man, this is hard, man, this is hard. And, and think of it more as an opportunity, it completely mm. changes your outcome and your, the way you look at it. It's the same thing with my training. You know, I've, I've always been a reasonably fit guy. I was a, a decent athlete when I was, when I was younger. Um, and then as you get older and you, you know, have responsibilities, family and businesses and stuff, you know, you, you have to make the time. I know you're a, a proper endurance athlete. I, I'm training for a, for a big hike, as you know, the room to room to room at the moment. So finding time to, you know, put time on your feet and all that kind of stuff is hard. But even with my training, um, I feel like I had a, uh, a very rigid, inflexible approach to doing fitness, you know, and because I, you know, I've, I've had tendencies towards perfectionism in my life, 
I was like, wow, if I don't have a, a program and I don't do it at least four or five times a week, and if I don't, and if I don't, no, 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 then it's not worth doing. And as I got a little bit older, what I realized was, you know, the, the, the power of incremental gains. And I remember listening to a, to a, a podcast by James Clear, who obviously famously wrote Atomic Habits. And he said, change the scope, not the frequency. And that was a light bulb moment for me. And I was like, so now, you know, we live in a beautiful building. There's a gym right downstairs. So now sometimes like today is a very busy day for me. As I mentioned, I was on calls early this morning. I've just run a four hour workshop for 90 salespeople from all over the world. I'm on with you. And then I've got to check on what else happened during my day. But at some point today, I might not have it in me to go and do a one hour, 90 minute, whatever, you know, proper training session for my big hike. But I could go downstairs and do 20 minutes. And maybe 20 minutes isn't amazing, but you know what? Change the scope, not the frequency. And that's now, and also try and enjoy it. Like I was trying to get Eleonora into golf. I'm a big golfer. I want, to, I want her to play golf because selfishly, I want to play more golf, but she's got no interest. She says, no, I want to play tennis. And I said, you know what? The last time I touched the tennis racket, I was 13 years old, but I want to be active and I want us to spend time together. I'm taking up tennis. And then I did a bit of a run around with her this week and I got a good sweat on and I just thought, you know what? Not only did I enjoy it, I got some exercise and I got to spend some quality time with my wife. So I think on that point of does it always need to be this hard? And, and going back to my earlier comment about resourcefulness, sometimes it requires a bit of resourcefulness. I mean, grit is amazing. You need grit. Life is going to throw challenges at you. You know, Jordan Peterson um, very famously says, you know, Pain is mandatory, suffering is not. Because we're all going to experience some pain in our life, right? But suffering is not mandatory. So what I'm trying to do at this stage of my life is say, okay, doing some of the stuff that I'm doing, taking on some of the challenges that I'm doing, it's, you know, ostensibly it's hard, but I can decide whether I suffer or whether I enjoy it or thrive or change the meaning. I get to change the meaning. I get to assign the meaning to what it is. You know, when I'm... When, you're, when you have the lactic acid in your legs and it's building up and you're like, your body's screaming, stop, stop, stop. You know, I can decide that what that means is how lucky am I to be able to get, my body can do this versus this sucks. I want to stop. Please get me out of here. You know, my, my mentor and business partner, Jack Daly, who you know, um, when you ask him about his, um, you know, 100 marathons that he ran all over the world, He'll say that the Arctic Circle is in the top three. And I said, well, why is it in the top three? He says, because it was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. So for the first 10 miles, we had snow to our knees and we could barely move. And it was like minus chill, whatever, like crazy. And he just said, in that moment when I was near frostbite and I was exhausted and I could barely put one leg in front of the other, and he was 68 at the time. He said, how lucky am I that at the age of 68, I'm successful enough to be here. I can find the time and I'm healthy enough to even try. We get to decide the meaning. And I think that's the, that's the really beautiful thing. That was really powerful. Um, I listened to that same podcast. I think it was Tim Ferriss. And oh, when, it might uh, have been, yeah. Yeah, Cleary was yeah. publishing his Power yeah. of Habits. Um, that's right. But- so let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about you. Give us some background, childhood, how you got into your business. What's your story? 
Um, yeah, so grew up in Cape Town, South Africa, hence the, the accent. Uh, moved from Cape Town to London in September 2001. Um, funny, longer story that I won't get into in great detail, but arrived two days after 9-11. Um, and then sadly, the, the company that was sponsoring me for a work visa had an office in the World Trade Center Towers, so canceled my work visa. So there I am in London, very little money, no job, no work visa, um, and no place to live. And I had a choice to make, right? I could get back on the plane and go home and everybody would have understood. Everybody would have been like, of course, you can't, you know, different country, like, you know, that this is crazy. And something in me was just like, no, I'm 23 years old. It's an adventure. I can figure this out. Uh, I slept on a mattress on the floor of a friend of mine's apartment because I had the misguided idea that I would find a job really fast. Um, turns out if you don't have a work visa, nobody wants to hire you. So eventually after five weeks and I've run out of money, um, a small IT company in like a not so nice part of London uh, decides to turn a blind eye to my visa situation and hires me to do a sales job. I wasn't in sales before I was in advertising. Fancy, you know, expense account, company car, you know, that kind of thing. They say, oh no, we have a sales job for you. And it's cold calling from the yellow pages, the actual yellow pages for people that still remember that. Um, and then you get in the car and you drive around the city that you don't know. Uh, we don't have a GPS for you. So you have a little map book that you have to pin to the steering wheel with your thumbs. And I have to sell Dell computers and Microsoft software to small companies. So um, I hated my life, like a lot. But my girlfriend at the time was uh, finishing college and about to move over to London to join me. Her father had told her not to. So I was determined at least to prove him wrong. So I do this job. And then, you know, I guess like many people that are listening to this, if you have enough, if you have a strong enough why and a little bit of grit, then you figure it out by trial and error. So over the next few years, I figured out how to sell. I figured out how to build sales teams. I built a sales team for that company. We eventually sold that business in 2006, I believe it was, to a larger IT firm. I made a little bit of money because I was a minority shareholder. I then bought a 51% stake in a small telecoms company. I grew that aggressively for two years, managed to sell that just before Lehman Brothers went down in 2008 and kind of took the whole world with them and then got into um, office design and build. So we took a company that was doing about $2 million, grew that to 10 million in three years organically. That got sold off. Then I got headhunted by a company doing a similar thing. They were doing 18 million at the time, I believe. And then I built the sales team and the marketing team became the CRO. And we took that company from 18 million to 180 million in five years, no external funding, no acquisitions, all organic growth. So that was just an unbelievable MBA in business. Um, I would be lying if I said I did it all myself. I was very fortunate to have some 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 good and bad mentors along the way. And I do say that not facetiously. I mean that even bad teachers are good teachers because they teach you something, right? Mm. You just have to find the value. So I had some great mentors along the way. Um, I had already been on the personal development path. So I'd figured out how to really, you know, feed myself and, and fill my cup. Um, but yeah, we had a great time and we built that company. We sold one of the divisions for a bit of money. And I exited that business in 2017. And then I had to kind of figure out what next. So, you know, I kind of 17 years into my professional career, I've made a little bit of money. So I guess I thought, hey, 
I'll be a consultant. I'll sit on boards. Like I'll be a non-executive director. You know, it means that I can tell other people what to do and I don't have to do any of the doing. That was my, my grand plan. Um, so I started qualifying as a scaling up coach. Uh, and then I met Jack Daly and Jack said to me, listen, you're wasting your time. You're obviously a sales animal. You're, you know, you love sales. You love building sales teams. You're good at it. You're knowledgeable. Um, I'm going to give you a leg up. You need to build a sales company. So in 2017, I started building Immerse. And um, yeah, it's, it's gone through a bunch of iterations. And today we serve, I don't know, a couple of hundred companies across seven different countries on three continents, maybe 40 different industries, 80% um, B2B, 20% B2C. Um, and really my, like you said at the beginning, you know, my passion has always been to bring excellence to the profession of sales. So what does that mean? It means that most every company we know wants to grow and they want to grow their sales, but there's good ways and bad ways of doing that, right? So we, we help them figure out kind of root cause analysis, what's working and what's not working. We help them build sales playbooks. So for those people on the, on the podcast who don't know what a playbook is, call it a repeatable selling system. Get all the bits that work and put it in a format that it can be coached to other people. Uh, we, we coach, we mentor, we train, and we do sales recruitment. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a heck of a journey, Greg, over the last six years. And we're having a lot of fun. And I'm now spending most of my time, as I said, running virtual and in-person workshops. And I've got an amazing team that run the programs. And you know, my, the reason I do it is it happened to me this week. I got a call from a client who signed up recently. And um, John said to me, he said, you know what, Moray? I just want to let you know that we've just finished a phase with you guys and, you know, the, it's great and the results are there and, um, you know, we're doing better than ever. And he owns the business with his wife. He said, but the thing that I'm really most happy about is you did that one thing that you promised me. When I first met you, I told you that it wasn't about the money for me. I told you that I wanted time back. I wanted to go fishing with my boys on a Friday. And this month is the first month that I've been fishing with wow. my boys on a Friday. Thank you so much. You've changed my life. And that's why I do it. That's why I get out of bed in the morning because I'm like, there is legitimately easier ways for me to make money than to run this business. But I truly feel like I get to do this. I don't have to do this. That's, that's awesome. A um, couple of questions off of that. What is the common stumbling block, mistake, issue that companies have in their sales organization? Oh my goodness, so many. Um, some of the common ones are, if it's kind of smaller early phase companies, so like startup scale-up companies, then very often the owner-manager CEO is stuck in a sales seat. So they either are still selling, they're the de facto sales manager, the de facto sales leader. So they're spending very little time actually being the CEO, thinking about strategic growth, and they're stuck in a sales seat. Or uh, very often they will say to me, why can't I find salespeople to sell like me? <laughs> or they will have tried and failed to build a sales team because building a sales team is harder than you think. Um, or they might have a few salespeople and the gap between the top performer and the bottom performer is really big and they don't know how to close the gap. Their forecast might be inaccurate. Their sales cycles might be too long. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, there's probably about 20 or so things 
Um, and if your listeners are interested, I can share a little one page that I have with them with like, these are all the common problems that we encounter. Um, there's about 20 things that are very common to businesses that are trying to get to that next level, but it also depends on where they are in their life cycle, right? When we work with kind of ambitious startups, they have a particular set of problems. And that's very often when owner, manager, CEO is still very much trapped in sales. When it's a scaling up company, so say five to 50 million, the problems get a little bit bigger. Now they need, they need a playbook. They need a system. They need repeatable, scalable selling success, not just a couple of brilliant individuals. And then when they get beyond 50 million, then normally they're building towards something. Now we want to create an enterprise value. We want a liquidity event. We need to increase our multiplier and EBITDA. We need to, you know, that kind of thing. So the problems really depend also on where they are in their life cycle. Yeah, that leads me into my next question um, around life cycle or I guess client experience. Walk us through their experience with, with Immerse. I mean, I would suspect step one is reading something off your website and then step two is X and, step, and so on. So walk us through you know, a traditional entrepreneur struggling with sales, sure. Googling to all the way to an engagement. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be humble here, not self-deprecating at all. I'm going to be humble and say that our online game is pretty poor. It's being worked on, I'm told, on the marketing team. It's not their fault. I take full responsibility. Um, so Googling us, you'll find some stuff. The short answer to that is it's not great because during COVID, we pivoted everything online like everybody did, right? We created an online academy. We did everything virtually, et cetera. And that worked pretty well. And then as we came out of COVID, the business just exploded. Like so many people that had, downsized their sales teams, came back and said, you know, we've cut costs as much as we can. It's time to build. So our business over the last, you know, year, 18 months has been absolutely on fire. And I'm, I'm going to put my hand up, bad CEO. I never prioritized changing the website back to making it more holistically what we do. So the online resources we have is a little bit on the iffy side. Um, typically how people find us is, um, they either hear me speak at an event. I'm, I speak quite a bit for various organizations. Uh, we're very active in organizations like Vistage, EO, YPO, you know, places like that. So um, a, lot of the, a lot of people come to us because they know us in those communities. Um, so somebody will say, hey, do you know anybody that can you know, do sales? And then we very often get recommended. Um, we have a lot of people that we do refer, uh, reciprocal referrals to. So let's say I work with your company. and. Um, we help you grow your sales really fast. A common problem that you might encounter is, oh, actually my financial reporting and management is now not keeping pace because so much more is coming in and there's more invoices and debt control and all this kind of stuff. So you might come to me and say, by the way, do you know anybody that can help me with my financial reporting? I know someone, right? So I will refer you to someone that I know and say, you know, Steve over here does fractional CFO. He'll come and help fix things. I don't take a referral fee from Steve for referral. That's just, I just ask he does a good job. But the understanding is, Steve, if I put you into Greg's company, then at some point when you're working with somebody else and they need sales, then refer them to me. So our growth of our business, which has been almost 100% year on year, we've been fortunate because through me speaking, through uh, my team in Europe doing speaking work, um, and then through this network of referral sources we have, um, we've been very fortunate and in, in picking up uh, very good lead sources of companies that are growing. Um, and that's been a great thing because those companies are typically motivated to do something. They have a sense of urgency. There's a compelling reason for them to buy 
And really what they want to know is what, we, what can we do for them, right? How can we solve the problem? Um, so we've not done a lot of marketing. I, I keep promising my team that we will. Um, but then 100% growth without the marketing, I thought it was probably good enough. So we haven't quite yet cracked that nut. That's fantastic. You know, you keep coming back to community, right? You're talking about community with your personal sure. development. You're now talking about community with your business and the organizations. And I find the same, like the more you lean into your community, the more it responds back to you. And and similar to how the universe presents opportunities to you in personal development, communities do the same thing, right? If my eyes will open up to a new opportunity mm -hmm. tomorrow just because I'm ready for something new. Um, I'm curious, just going back to sales strategies and, and opportunities you see or challenges you see within organizations, has that changed much over time, right? Over your career, have what companies were suffering with in their sales strategy 15 years ago, is it the same today? So people often ask me, so Mona, you've been doing this 24 years. How is sales the same or different? You're like 24 years ago than it is now, right? And the answer is, it, it is the same and it is different. How is it the same? 24 years ago when I started, Sales was the transfer of trust. Today, sales is the transfer of trust. If you're not able to conclude a transaction with someone, oftentimes it's because there hasn't been a transfer of trust. Especially when you do your first transaction with someone. You know, I can give you social proof, case studies, testimonials, references, whatever, that I've solved the problem that you have before for other people. But until we actually do something together, there is an element that you just have to trust that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it well. And I'm going to meet and or eat, exceed your expectations. So the first one is an emotional buy. It's a transfer of trust. So I think that's been consistent over the last two decades. What's changed is how we communicate and the amount of noise. Mm. So with the proliferation of social media, the internet, now AI, it's hard to, it's, it, first of all, it's hard to cut through the noise. It's hard to actually stand out from the crowd. It's hard to have a, not only a compelling a compelling offer, but an irresistible offer. 24 years ago, we weren't competing on a global scale to the effect that we are now. Things have certainly, you know, drop shipping and whatnot. It's certainly become a lot easier. You're not competing with anybody and everybody all over the world, pretty much. Maybe language was a barrier depending on the industry that you're in, but you're competing with anyone and everyone. There's a lot of noise because of the proliferation of communication channels. There's also more information available about our prospects than ever before. So in that way, there's also a plus side to it. And I think one of the things that I've seen, particularly over the last few years, particularly because of COVID, is we've had to teach a lot of sales teams how to build rapport and relationship when you're not in person with a prospect. You know, if we look at the Moravian theory, the Moravian theory says, 55% body language, 37% paralinguistics, so how I use my voice, and only 7% is the content. I think I've got those numbers about right. 38%, the 55, 38, and then 7% is the content of what I say. Well, 
if I'm on a video call like you and I are now, I mean, I can see your shoulders up, but I don't, I, I have less of a sense of your energy right now, of your body language. Your voice is being modulated through a microphone, the same one as mine. You've got an AirPod in. I'm listening to you through a speaker. So a lot of the tacticity of this transaction, of this interaction is getting lost. And a lot of salespeople that were very good at sales pre-COVID have found it incredibly hard post. So I think the short answer to your question is, Trust is still the pivot. It's still, for me, the, the, the center of the issue. How it's changed is how we build rapport and relationship, how we build trust. I call it the relationship pyramid, how we move up the relationship pyramid. And that's affected everything from conversion ratios to deal values to sales cycles to lag periods. All of that has been impacted because of the world that we now live in. And we could fill two other podcasts on that conversation because it is fascinating. You know, it is, it has changed so much where you're not shaking the hand or making a joke or in person oh. and picking up the body language. Like we spent so much time learning how to read body language as a buyer or just a building relationships that that opportunity isn't there. Um, that's fascinating. Uh, Mornay, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, sure. Well, the website is immersedsales.com. That's E-M-E-R-S-E sales.com. It's a website. Uh, they're more than welcome to email me directly. Uh, Suzanne, my, my, my business manager, normally picks up the emails, but she'll let me know. Suzanne's email is s.garrity, G-E-R-R-E-T-Y at immersedsales.com. Um, or you can just, you can type into Google funnynamesouthafrican.com and that'll also find me. <laughs> Because okay. um, awesome. Mornay Smith, you can see on my shirt. Mornay Smith is a funny spelling. Mornaysmith.com is my speaker website. My business is immersedsales.com or just send us an email. If any of those names that I spelled is hard to remember, uh, the general email that goes to my whole team is takeaction at immersedsales.com. Fantastic. And we'll put those in our show notes along with your one pager. So please remember to send that to me. Mornay, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, starting off or talking about grittiness. And then when you became sort of vulnerable around your intention without action, I appreciate that. And then when we just closed and talking about this transfer of trust and how that has been, the history of sales is a, is a transfer of trust process. Um, so thank you for your insights. Anyone in the audience, if you've picked up um, some insights, you like the show, we ask that you share it with others. Uh, this message needs to be communicated throughout our community. Um, so do your part and, you know, like the show and share it with your friends. Thanks again, Mornay. Thank you so much for the invitation, Greg. I really enjoyed it. It was a great show. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. To hear more inspiring stories and strategies around the endurance mindset, be sure to subscribe below or visit us at chiefenduranceofficer.com. Until next time, keep pushing those limits.